I'm excited to be back with you all in Ruth this morning. If I can get my water to get in there. Okay, perfect. Um, We've had a glorious Easter hiatus, and now we're back in the Old Testament book of Ruth, picking up in chapter 3. If you need a refresher, if if you've been in and out, uh, we've been looking at this story as a God-sized love story. A story in which, through the main characters of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, a much greater story between God and humanity is being written. We began in Ruth chapter 1 with Naomi, who suddenly finds herself in the absolute worst of times, having become a sojourning, sonless widow, seemingly destined for destitution. We then saw in Ruth 2 how the glimmers of hope begin to break into Naomi's dark world, particularly through the faithfulness and hard work of Ruth and the abundant generosity of a landowner named Boaz. But now we arrive in chapter 3, which one person called a very strange chapter, especially thanks to some ancient social customs that are uh, particularly sort of odd to our ears. But amidst that strangeness, what I'm hoping we'll see today in this chapter is a message that we are called to be men and women who take risky, noble action while trusting God to accomplish His kingdom purposes. I want to say that again. We are called to be men and women who take risky, noble action while trusting God to accomplish His kingdom purposes. Okay, we're going to see that today in three scenes that you'll see in the outline on your bulletin. The first shows us a woman of risky initiative. The second showing us a woman of noble character. Notice the parentheses. And the third showing us a man of immediate action. Okay? Let's pray to begin our time uh, in the Word this morning. Father, we confess our need, our deep, deep need of you and your saving work for us in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to come and make this Word alive for us. Uh, to do the work in us that you desire. We, we need you. We cannot do it alone. I cannot do it by my mere words. We cannot do it simply by hearing these words. We need your spirit to be at work among us here. So we invite that work, and we invite your presence, and we invite you to bless this preaching and hearing of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let's begin by looking at scene one and the woman of risky initiative in verses one to five. Now, if you remember where we are in the story, Ruth has been gleaning in the field of a godly man named Boaz, who in light of what Ruth was doing for her mother-in-law, provided for her well above and beyond what the law of God required Boaz to make available for poor widows like Naomi and Ruth. And we pick up here at the end of the harvest, Seven weeks or so since Ruth and Boaz had their first faith-filled encounter. Now, if you've been tracking with the story, then there's something that probably jumps off the page as we begin to read chapter 3. What do you notice about Naomi here? Do you notice, perhaps, that this is not the same woman we saw in chapter (laughs) 1, who said the Lord was against her, that she was no longer to be called Naomi, which means pleasant, but she was to be called Mara, which means bitter. How do we know we're not in that same deep, dark place? Because this is now a woman who's dreaming again. She's scheming. She's making plans. She seems to have hope again, thinking maybe, just maybe, there's life ahead of her because the Lord had begun to renew her. And it's in light of that renewed hope that she takes on the role of matchmaker. 
That's what she admits when she says to Ruth, should I not seek rest for you? See, this harkens back all the way to chapter 1, verse 9, when Naomi asked the Lord to give Ruth rest. And where was that rest to be found for a woman like uh, a widow like Ruth? Well, Naomi knew that she, along with every other woman in the ancient world, could only find rest if she found the embrace of another husband, another man who, who could, she could marry and be protected and provided for. So Naomi is starting to become the answer to her own prayer, that the Lord would provide rest and security for Ruth, despite Naomi's insistence, if you remember from chapter 1, that she had nothing to offer Ruth in that department. Now with renewed energy and hope, she's saying to Ruth here, you need a husband, and now I'm the one who's going to take initiative to help you find one. This is where we need to acknowledge that her plan may seem to our ears a a bit bizarre for multiple reasons. For one, Naomi specifically brings out the fact that Boaz's being a relative is a good thing and makes him a likely prospect, right? It's a little odd to a society that uh, has a revulsion of the thought of kissing cousins, right? It's kind of like, ooh. But, of course, there's, there's more involved than just Naomi and Boaz being kin, and we'll get to that a little further on. But what else that's strange is, well, the plan itself. First of all, since when was the threshing floor, where kernels were separated from the chaff, a a place where romance bloomed, much less marriage being proposed? It's kind of the modern-day equivalent of a a guy bending a knee in a cattle stall or something, you know? Uh, It's just a little off, and uh, he, he might end up with a little something on his knees rather than the yes he's looking for, right? So there's something off about it. On top of that, there's this covert ops part of the mission here. And this isn't a date. This isn't even a blind date. It's let's wake this guy up in the middle of the night and see what he wants to do about a woman laying at his feet, right? It's an odd situation. It sounds absurd to us, and it it would have sounded pretty far-fetched to the original hearers. Unlikely to succeed. That's what we should be sort of thinking at this stage. Probably the only part of the plan that resonates with us is this instruction that Naomi gives to Ruth to wash, put on perfume, and put on your best-looking dress, right? That sounds more like modern dating advice. But in that day, it was all the more necessary, right? Because, well, I'm, I'm in a bit of a bind here. See, I, I know, or at least I've been informed, that women only glisten, right? But the reality is Ruth probably had done a lot of glistening that day working out in the harvest field, right? So yeah, a bath, a little perfume, couldn't, couldn't hurt on that initial approach, right? Guys, I think the application point for you is clear. If women need to shower and address their scent before a big date, uh, you can be pretty sure you need to as well. So hope, hope you're taking notes. But all joking and modern sensibilities aside, the thing we really need to see that the original audience would have seen incredibly was that this was an extremely risky initiative that Naomi was proposing. This was by no means playing it safe. Why was it risky? Well, think about it. For one, think about the reversal of roles that we are talking about here. Essentially, we have a woman proposing to a man, a younger person proposing to an older person, a destitute worker proposing to a landowner, and a foreigner proposing to an Israelite. All unthinkable in that day. But even more than that, they're, they're putting a lot on the line in pursuing this risky initiative. This was the man they had found favor with and were receiving their entire livelihood from. 
What if he was offended by their broach of protocol, right? What if he accused Ruth of being promiscuous before understanding the nature of her request? What if others discovered these two sleeping around at the threshing floor and both their reputations were shot? What if Boaz, in a moment of weakness, decided to take advantage of a woman who had placed herself in a very vulnerable position? What if, what if, what if? See, we've got to understand the risk involved in what Naomi's proposing and what Ruth agrees to here. Because only if we see that are we going to see the point that God calls us as men and women to take risks at certain times in our lives. That God calls both men and women to take initiative in ways that that bring us out of our comfort zone. And yet, in the midst of that, we're called to trust God in them and go for it. Trust God that he's working out his kingdom purposes in the midst of things that we go, whoa, this doesn't feel safe. This doesn't feel comfortable. This is risky. What's going to happen here? There's a story that the former lead pastor here, Jason Lancaster, once told to portray the danger of risking for others, and I'm going to shamelessly steal it and use it here. It's a true story about a bridge and a man. See, there's this bridge in China that's four miles long called the Nanjing River Bridge. It should be up on the screen. There we go. And this bridge is actually the number one site for suicides worldwide because approximately a person a week jumps from this bridge to their deaths. Okay, now enter this man, Chin C. He should be next up. Here he is. Who has come to be known as the Good Samaritan of Nanjing because he has taken the initiative and risk of becoming a suicide watchman on the bridge. In his spare time, this man drives up and down the bridge on his moped, binoculars in hand, looking for people who are about to leap to their death so he can talk them down and, if necessary, pull them down for the railing so they don't plunge to their death. Now, you want to talk about risky. I mean, this man is encountering people at their their most unstable moments. And the reality is some of them don't care. They, They can pull the guy in with them, no problem. But to him, it's worth the risk. Why? Because he sees the value in human life. And he intentionally plans to put himself in risky situations to protect it. And I wonder, EBF, in a book where we're hearing so much about God's providence and his sovereign control, are we also hearing the call to act that the book sets before us? The call to act in potentially risky ways to plan and prepare to do something, even if that's something that may sound crazy to other people and even to ourselves. Because ultimately, we trust that God is in control and at work in and through our actions. We can't walk away from the book of Ruth and say, okay, well, hey, I learned that God is in charge of my circumstances, so I'm just going to sit back and let him work. No, that's not it. Just as Chen Si, this man, saw a need in front of him and acted at great risk to himself, so we should risk and act because we know that God is sovereignly at work in and through our actions. One of my old seminary professors at Trinity, Lawson Younger, puts this so well when he says, believers are not to wait passively for events to just happen. Rather, they must seize the initiative when the opportunity presents itself, knowing that God is the one who presents the opportunity. 
It goes on. In chapter 3, we see that Yahweh acts in Naomi's acts. That is, what Naomi does constitutes at the same time what God does. Her acts execute God's plans. Yes. Do, do you see that? We've actually seen it throughout the book. That as God's people act, so God is acting to accomplish his kingdom purposes through their actions, sometimes and even especially the risky ones. So we need to hear in this book, embodied in both Naomi and as we'll see, Ruth as well, the call for us as God's people who know he's in charge to take strategic, holy action, to plan some righteous, risky activity and then do it. It's not a call to foolish risks, okay? For that undercuts the noble part we're going to see in a moment, but risks nonetheless. And so I have to ask today, is there an area in your life where you're, you're sensing you're hesitant to entrust your well-being to God's care and, and risk ministering in Jesus' name in some way? Is there something God is calling you and your family and your friends and your roommates to do some good kingdom work that seems beyond you and a little risky, that you're struggling to trust God for and, and follow through as you should. These things, these risky next steps, look very different for each one of us. For our former pastor, it was recognizing the Lord was calling him and his wife to adopt and foster children, even after they already had four kids biologically, on a pastor's salary. For you, it may mean risking what Somebody thinks of you by sharing Jesus with them as the Spirit leads or giving sacrificially to the church or a mission organization or to the poor in a way that just is beyond what, what sort of feels like it's in the realm of the comfortable. Whatever it is, I hope that the Good Samaritan of Nanjing and more than him, these, risk, these godly women of risky initiative, Naomi and Ruth, will encourage you to take that risky initiative as God leads, knowing he is trustworthy in the midst of it all. We can be assured of that. And we actually get to see that very reality portrayed as we move on to scene two and see next a woman of noble character in verses six to 15. And at this point, I feel like I have to be like the Motion Picture Association of America saying, warning, what you're about to hear is one of those PG-13 portions of Scripture, maybe even an R rating if your uh, sensibilities are a little sensitive, right? Um, but let's proceed. Let's see what the scriptures are laying out for us here in this scene. Look again at verse 6. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Can you believe it? Ruth is pulling the trigger on this harebrained scheme of her mother-in-law and, and then some. And I wondered, you know, as this story is being read, did, did you find yourself getting nervous? Maybe some butterflies about what's, what's happening here? Part of how we're drawn into the drama of this story is, is kind of by feeling that tension. How is this plan going to go? How is Boaz going to react to this? And thankfully, to start, Boaz is unknowingly playing his role to a T. Having finished an evening of celebration with food and drink, the text says his heart was merry, right? We're getting the picture. No doubt there is a party going on at the threshing floor that night because it's been such a successful harvest. Right? By God's grace, the famine is over. The Lord has provided abundantly for his people and specifically for Boaz and his workers. So after a very fun evening mixed with work and play, Boaz goes over to the end of one of those grain piles and he lies down, which again seems strange to us. 
but this would have been common for any landowner during harvest season who wanted to keep a close eye on all the grain that had come in. Perfect, just like Naomi thought. So Ruth keeps a close eye on Boaz from the shadows, wouldn't want to lay at the feet of the wrong man here, right? That would really throw a wrench in the plans. And she tracks Boaz, waits for him to fall asleep, and probably everyone else for that matter, quietly approaches, uncovers his feet, and then lies down and waits. And here, in this moment of surprise, the narrator invites us with the language he uses to enter into Boaz's shoes for a moment. He's feeling good, snoozing by the big pile of grain, when all of a sudden he wakes up and, whoa, there is a woman lying at my feet. Not something that happens every night at the threshing floor, I can assure you. And next comes a logical question, who are you? See, there's enough light to make out that this is a figure of a woman, but not enough light to know who exactly this is. Her initial response, I am Ruth, your servant. But then Ruth utters these incredibly risky words that begin to probably depart from the script that Naomi had given her. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That's the ESV that we heard. Now, there's other ways to translate what Ruth is saying here. The NIV has spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Probably for humor's sake, my favorite is the King James Version, which has Ruth say, spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaiden, which of course is the preferred version in Scotland, although I guess technically they call it a kilt, but that's uh, neither here nor there. But if for whatever reason none of these utterances sound to you like the uh, utterance of undying love you were hoping for, hold on a second. See, for Ruth, what's going on here is she's essentially proposing that Boaz propose, right? But the way she does that is both subtle and powerful. See, when Ruth asks that Boaz spreads his wings over her, we need to realize that this is the exact same word that Boaz used in chapter 2, verse 12, when he said to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, right? Ah, so we see a little more clearly here that Ruth is taking Boaz's words from their first encounter and she's playing with them. She's building on them, showing forth the possibility that Boaz now has the opportunity to become the instrument in fulfilling his own prayer for Ruth upon their first meeting. Very subtle. Essentially, Ruth is saying to Boaz, just putting it out there, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, has been a refuge for me one in whom I have found safety and security in the shadow of his wing, so will you also extend your wing and take me into your provision and protection by becoming my husband? Now, this is not exactly the language of a modern marriage proposal, right? Cover me with your wings. It's more reminiscent of the lover's language and praising his beloved in the Song of Songs, like his comparing her hair to a flock of goats descending the hills of Gilead. That's actually in there. But in its subtlety, it communicates so powerfully. It calls on Boaz to see that here Ruth is casting herself at the mercy of one who is like God himself in a position of power to save. Not because he must. Boaz has absolutely no obligation in this situation. But because his character is such 
that it leads her to risk crying out for help. Do you see that? His character, his godliness has created the space for Ruth to take this risky initiative. Ruth has at great risk to herself taken initiative, put herself out there. And as these profound words come from her mouth, the original audience would have been shocked, and like us, they would have been waiting with bated breath for Boaz's response. How is he going to respond to this very forward proposal? What was he going to say in this situation that was so atypical and honestly crossed all kinds of bounds in terms of both proper etiquette and sexual appropriateness? In our sex-saturated culture, we probably don't pick up on it here, but this kind of scenario in the biblical world, a woman coming to lay at the bed of a man whose feet she's uncovered, that, that was racy by ancient standards, guys. And see, not only that, but Ruth has put herself in an extremely vulnerable situation. And part of that involved the fact that there was, there was simply no recourse for a woman of her stature or lack thereof if she was taken advantage of by a man of Boaz's standing. And even if Boaz wouldn't be tempted to take advantage of Ruth in that way, there was the sexual temptation that might arise. The temptation for Boaz to say, sure, I'll marry you. Now, let, let's go ahead and enjoy the fruits of marriage before it's time. I mean, I think we need to be candid here, folks. Despite what many of us believe, not much has changed in terms of human nature between our day and Ruth's. Right, we can think about this as a parallel situation to what many of us know and have seen. Even for a godly man whose character is already established, this would likely have been a place of potential temptation, maybe even great temptation. And guys, I, I want to ask you, if you were in a similar situation where you had all the cards and a beautiful young woman come smelling a perfume and making herself entirely vulnerable before you, what would you do? How would you react? Guys, what kind of men we are and whether we are men of integrity or not is revealed in exactly these kinds of moments. For those of you who are dating, it's late at night. You're getting comfortable with one another in your dorm rooms or apartment or whatever, and you're saying to yourself, whoa, we, we both, we, we love each other. We know we want to get married. You know, what's the big deal? Or take the everyday moments in front of our computer screens or our cell phones. I don't need to tell you that pornography is eating our lunch, guys. Because we're too willing to sacrifice being men of integrity unto God at the altar of temporary satisfaction available at the click of a button. And that can't go on. Otherwise, our faith which says that women are created in the image of God as precious and that these sisters all around us are to be honored beyond description is it's just hypocrisy, it's just talk. Men and women, sexual morality is a big deal, and that's putting it much too mildly. And we need to start identifying those moments when we, as godly men and women, are tempted to give in to a moment of selfish pleasure rather than persevere in obedience unto the God that, comes, uh, unto the God, uh, that we know that comes from faith. And see, I think in all this story, this is told not for the sake of sensationalism, the way that Hollywood would tell Ruth's story, right? That's not why it's in here. But the drive home a vital point, and it's this. Both this man and this woman are people of noble character. They're people of integrity. 
and it's demonstrated in a moment when no one was watching and no one would have ever known what happened. So I've got to ask, what's demonstrated in those sort of moments in your life as they come up, as they occur? What's demonstrated in an instant at your computer screen? Or in the nights, it's just you and your boyfriend all alone, no one looking in on you. Or in the privacy of your own home, tucked far away from public eye and the social incentives to act honorably. What's revealed in those moments? Thankfully, here we have a scene that serves as a model for us who are seeking to live by faith. Two characters in sexually charged circumstances who demonstrate integrity and don't give in to self-interest in a moment of temptation. These aren't perfect people. They're people of faith and integrity letting that inform the way they're living in that moment of temptation. Ruth's proposal is a noble offer, not an invitation to Boaz to have a, a crass sexual encounter, as some might read it. And thankfully, we see in the remaining verses that Boaz's action confirms the noble character we're already told about in this book. What does Boaz say in response in verse 11? May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Oh, what a relief those words are. Right then we know by the blessing that's always upon Boaz's lips that he will respond well to this risky, risky endeavor. But what's amazing is his response isn't just safe and kind. It's full of joy and excitement, isn't it? Can you hear what he says? He's relieved. He's amazed. It seems that perhaps it's something he's wondered about but has been too afraid to broach most likely because of social status and age difference and all those kind of things that existed between them. He's excited that rather than running after younger men her age, whether they were rich or poor, she has instead opened the door for Boaz to engage and to propose. And propose he does. He begins with an affirmation of Ruth that's extremely rich. He says in verse 10 that this last kindness that is, what she's demonstrating by coming to him in this way, is greater than the first, that is, the kindness that Ruth has shown to Naomi and even to her deceased husband. He also goes on to say that in what she is doing, she continues to demonstrate that she is a worthy woman, using the exact same word to describe Ruth that the narrator used of Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1. So just as Boaz is a man of standing. He's a man of valor. He's a mighty man. He's a godly man. He's a man of noble character. Well, so also Ruth is a woman of standing, a woman of valor, a woman of might, a woman of godliness and of noble character. And what a match is being made here then. And what a statement. Remember, this is a woman who, according to the traditional value system of that day, was far from noble. A seemingly barren, impoverished foreign widow, relatively worthless in the eyes of society at large. And yet Boaz is turning the whole value system on its head here when he uses the same word to describe Ruth as the word which describes the highly commended Proverbs 31 woman. What does Proverbs 31.10 say? Kicking off a section on this female embodiment of wisdom, a wife or a woman of noble character who can find... It's often said that a good man is hard to find. But here the scriptures affirm that a good woman is also hard to find. And in Boaz's estimation, he has found one in Ruth. If you want to know what the elusive Proverbs 31 woman looks like in the flesh, look at Ruth. 
a woman of noble character who takes risks and trusts God amidst it all. But see, the reality is, why here does Boaz affirm that Ruth is a woman of noble character? A Proverbs 31 woman. Why here does he say that this kindness is greater than the earlier kindness? That's still kind of mystery here. And the answer is that Boaz sees very clearly in what's happening that Ruth is not seeking to marry again for herself alone. She's seeking to marry again in this particular instance that her mother-in-law, Naomi, would have provision and see redemption from the pit of despair that she's fallen into. How does Boaz know that Ruth's heart is completely and utterly true to her vow of faithfulness to Naomi from chapter 1? Because she stresses that Boaz is a guardian or kinsman redeemer, someone who has the power to redeem Naomi and her family line from the precipitous state that they're currently in. Boaz sees that Ruth is not seeking to marry for money or for love or even just for the sense of security alone. She's seeking to marry that the family she has vowed to serve would be taken care of through a guardian redeemer like Boaz, a man of noble character. It's this act of self-sacrifice, of deep covenant commitment that Boaz sees and is just amazed by and so attracted to. Here's a woman who's willing to marry for the benefit of her mother-in-law that the family line would not die out but would continue. Boaz recognized that here in front of him was a, a model of biblical womanhood a godly woman who has integrity and, and used her strength to take risky, noble action for the sake of others, trusting the Lord amidst it all. It's important to observe here that Boaz's hesitancy over moving forward with the plan isn't a matter of cold feet, literally, but what stands in the way of him marrying Ruth is a legal matter, the details of which we'll cover next week. But for now, at this point in the story, all we can do is let out kind of a collective complaint. Oh, man, come on. What do you mean there's another guy in the picture? We don't want to hear about another man at this point. We want to see Ruth and Boaz heading directly to the wedding chapel without passing go and without collecting $200. And see, Jane Austen must have taken really good notes from the book of Ruth here. Because as we all know, every good love story has another man, right? So the tension continues. In the midst of this frustrating development, what's going on? Boaz continues to demonstrate that he's a man of noble character. If he's going to do this, he's going to do this right. There's no cutting corners, see? This is a legal matter. And we've seen that Boaz is a man who loves and respects God's law that he believes should be ruling over the land. This is the time of the judges, remember? Everyone's doing what they see right in their own eyes, not Boaz. And so Boaz lets Ruth know that either way she's taken care of. There's finally a safety net underneath them, underneath this vulnerable, impoverished, foreign widow, and by extension, underneath Naomi as well. For Boaz says, if he doesn't marry you, believe me, I will. Until that matter is determined, which supposedly will be clear by morning, we see Boaz just extending more and more overflowing generosity and care that we've come to expect from him. He directs Ruth to sleep the night there. It would be too dangerous for her to go back home alone at that point. But we see he also directs her to head home in the twilight of day before anyone can be recognized. Not because he's ashamed, but because he's a man who wants her reputation protected from any hint of impropriety, see? 
And Boaz just can't help himself in giving Ruth six measures of barley to take back to Naomi, which, if you can believe it, is an engagement ring of sorts. I can see the guys taking notes. Six measures of barley instead of expensive diamond ring. Perfect. All this leads us much more briefly to the third scene, Ruth's return home from this risky endeavor in verses 16 to 18. There we see that Naomi, probably like all the characters, didn't get much sleep that night. She just can't wait for Ruth to get home and give her the update. And does this sound familiar? Ruth comes home after a risky initiative and a faith-filled encounter with Boaz with abundant grain in hand. Yep, it's a repeat of chapter 2. Ruth is once again really bringing home the bacon, and once again she's doing it because Boaz is a generosity machine. He's a man of immediate action. He wouldn't have Ruth return to her mother-in-law empty-handed. Boaz communicates to both Ruth and Naomi loud and clear, I'm on this. Don't worry. You're going to be protected and provided for. Just wait a little bit longer. And Naomi gets the message and reassures Ruth, okay, we've just got to wait. The man of action's on the move, and he won't rest until the matter's settled, even today. And so, cliffhanger alert, you have to come back next week to see how everything plays out, which of these two men wins out, what happens to Ruth, Naomi, and the threatened family line. But for today, to close, three quick points of application. One for the guys, one for the ladies, one for all of us. To the men first, I think we have some real soul-searching to do when we consider the kind of man Boaz is. A good man, a man of noble character, and a man of action. A man who will not rest until the matter is settled. Guys, I've got to ask, are, are we men who talk a big talk? But when it comes down to it, there's nothing to show for that talk in the end. We don't want to be just men of talk. We want to be men of integrity, don't we? Men of honor. Men who are true to our word, who act on our faith convictions as the Spirit of God enables. It's by grace. This is not a pull up our bootstraps and make this thing happen. Okay, that's not what's going on here. I think we need to let Boaz and, and, and even Naomi and Ruth and their risky, noble action be a spur to us as to be men of action. Not just in word, but also in deed. There's enough to chew on there for us. Now to the ladies. So many things can be said from this chapter. I want to leave you with just one. We see in Ruth and Naomi women of risky initiative, women of character, good, godly women who aren't afraid to act and trust the Lord in that acting. And yet at the end of the chapter, where do we find these women of noble character? We find them waiting. They've acted. They've taken great risk, and, and now they have to wait to see how things are going to play out according to God's sovereign design. And I hope that this could be an encouragement to you ladies who find yourself, whatever the specific circumstances, in a place of waiting. Maybe it's waiting for a husband to come along, or to be blessed with a child, or for a family member to grow and mature in the ways you would desire. Maybe it's waiting for some, something, someone to bring you out of a dark and lonely season in your life. Whatever it is for you, I pray you would see today that you are no weaker for waiting patiently upon the Lord, putting your hope and trust in Him alone than these women were 
who have planned and acted, and now they, they have to say, you know, we'll wait to see what the Lord has for us in his good and gracious providence. And let me particularly say to the single ladies in the room who are desiring to be married, this portion of God's word should be an incredible encouragement to you to wait until a man of noble character who loves the Lord and loves God's word and will cherish you and serve you and love you as Christ loves you and cherishes you and cherishes the church comes along. And don't dare compromise on that standard. You want a God-saturated man, ladies. Not a guy who is nice enough, I guess. My wonderful wife Emily is always saying, I think very insightfully, that any of the singles in this room could get married rather quickly if they wanted, tomorrow even. It's not about whether you're good or beautiful enough to get married. It's about whether you will wait upon the Lord, trust Him, and spend the season of singleness growing in your love of the Lord and maturity in the faith and, and see what He brings along in His perfect timing for you. Easy to say, hard to do, but this book is calling us to press into that calling. He's going to sustain you and provide for you in that season. Lastly, for all of us, in the waiting, there's a call to trust the Lord as our refuge and protection and help, as the reason why we can take risks in the first place. This seems very appropriate for us in this season, EBF. We are waiting on the Lord. We are looking to him and trusting him. There's action being taken. There's movement happening, but we're waiting. Where's our hearts in that? Are we really looking to him, trusting him for our church's future? This is the time to do that. An unsettled time, but an exciting time as well. The reason we can put everything on the line for Christ and trust him is that we know we're taken care of and provided by the Lord provided for by the Lord in a way that no particular man or woman ever could, right? And the freedom that comes from being tucked safely under the wings of the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe and of his redeeming love for us in Christ is what enables us, all of us, to be men and women who take risky, noble action, all the while trusting God to accomplish his kingdom purposes in and through that action. Let's pray for hearts that align with that as we move forward. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful uh, that you have come, that you have loved, that you have poured out your life unto death and have risen again from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father that we might know that we are under the wings of the Lord's sovereign good protection. I pray for everyone in here that we could really take that to heart today. I pray for our church that we could take that to heart, that we could look to you, that we could act as you give us opportunities to take risks as you open those doors, to trust you in it, and, and then to wait, to wait and see how you will be at work and to trust you in the waiting. Give us greater faith to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.